Lord, we praise you as our sovereign Savior, and we do declare our trust and direct our worship to you as our God and King. We come to your word as our life. It is our life. It gives us direction and guidance in the way that you'd have us to go. And it is to us life, and we praise you for it, for this gift. And pray that now, as your church gathers around the word, that we will continue as we have sung it, to now consider it and meditate upon these very words that you have given to us. We pray in behalf of those who know not Christ that you would continue to illumine that word in their life and bring them to saving faith. Meet with us here and anoint this meeting with your presence, with your grace, with your instruction. Through Christ we pray. Amen. A single word of news can liberate and agitate. The same piece of news that liberates one person and rejoices the heart deeply troubles another who reacts with hostility against it. This was certainly the case when news reached the island of Jamaica in 1833 that the English Parliament had abolished slavery in all British colonies. The plantation and slave owners operating in Jamaica profited from the labor of slaves, many of whom were mercilessly driven and abused, particularly in the sugar-raising industry. Nine years earlier, missionaries William and Mary Nibb sailed from England to Jamaica in the service of Christ. Nibb was horrified by the abuses that they were witnessing daily. And he spoke out in protest, protest against the way that slaves were being treated there in Jamaica. As you can imagine, he was aggressively opposed by plantation owners. And the pro-slavery press in Jamaica repeatedly slandered him in print. They burned down buildings that he was using for teaching. And they eventually imprisoned him. William was eventually released and chosen to return to England to plead the cause of Jamaican slaves, which he did, and labored there for three years, going from church to church, speaking as much as he could find opportunity to speak, even testifying for days before a mostly hostile British parliament. But in time, Nib's cause prevailed, and news of liberation reached the Jamaican slaves. When the Nibs returned to Jamaica, a crowd of newly freed slaves, and many of whom were part of the church that Nib had pastored three years earlier and would continue to pastor now for some years, they received him with joy, with weeping, and picked him up in their arms and carried him to the church where they gathered for prayer and celebration. But again, as you can imagine, this same glorious message of liberation was despised by others, by the plantation owners, by the slave masters who were profiting from this trade, and indeed and continuingly by the pro-slavery press. The same word that liberated some caused great disturbance to others, and the pro-slavery press continued its blistering attacks against Nib, slandering and ridiculing him until he died an untimely death from disease on the island, 42 years of age. God's word of salvation is very similar. 
It leaves no one unchanged. You hear it and you rejoice. On some level, you respond to this word with gladness of heart. It is the God-empowered message that liberates the lost from sin and their bondage to it. But the same word from God deeply disturbs others who cling all the harder to their idols and lash out against the message and those who proclaim that message. We witness these dueling responses in the Apostle Paul's missionary efforts in the two towns, in two towns of uh, northeast Greece as we come here to Acts chapter 17 today. And we find, first of all, there's both responses in both of these towns, in these, the city of Thessalonica and Berea, but we see particularly an emphasis on God's word that agitates those who reject it here in the first nine verses as we come to Thessalonica and Paul's journeys and his evangelistic team's journeys now through Greece. Verse 1 of chapter 17, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them, from the scriptures. The city of the Roman Empire had a synagogue, a house of worship for Jewish people. Paul's evangelistic team typically started there. In every synagogue throughout the world, the Holy Scriptures were read, what we know to be the Old Testament. And as they read those scriptures, they were then receiving them and they directly pointed to Christ as Messiah. So this was an ideal place to begin evangelistic efforts in an area that had never heard of Christ. So his strategy then was to persuade Jews from Scripture that God had sent Christ as the prophesied Messiah and the Savior of the world. And then the group that would respond would form a local church that would continue to shine light upon the gospel long after Paul and his team had left town, moved on to another place. So Paul locates the synagogue in Thessalonica, as he will in Berea, to come. And there, in keeping with his strategy, we notice here in verse 2, notice at the end, that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, verse 3, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, here's his message in a sense, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This Jesus that I'm talking about, this historical figure, I proclaim to you is the Christ that the Old Testament Scriptures have prophesied. The Greek terms here, reasoned, explaining, proving, indicate that Paul addressed the congregation with logical argumentation. He explained the meaning, that is the authorial intent of the Old Testament Scriptures. And he rationally demonstrated from those texts the necessity and the accomplishment of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
He did this in an earnest attempt to persuade his hearers to embrace Jesus as Messiah. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now we, we know Paul is a very intellectual man. There's no question about it. We read his letters and they are carefully reasoned. They are sometimes complicated as to what he's actually saying. So we know, but maybe this was just Paul then. Maybe it's just how he went about it. Uh, this is kind of his way and maybe not the case with others. But actually that's not the case. As we look at the other apostles, they operated the same way. Reasoning from the scriptures, explaining, teaching seeking to lay out the case from the text of Scripture. We think back to Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, and Peter, this rough-and-tumble fisherman from Galilee, this uneducated man, is taking the Scriptures in Acts 2, and he's defending Jesus as Messiah and the resurrection from the dead from those texts, which he knew to be the Word of God in which many of his listeners also embrace that way. Then we go to Acts chapter 8, for instance, and we take Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch taking the scroll, the text of Isaiah 53, and developing from that passage where this man was reading Scripture that Christ is, that Jesus is the Christ and the Savior of the world. We go to Acts chapter 10, and Peter reasons there from Scriptures with Cornelius a Gentile, a Roman centurion, yet a God-fearer. That is, one who was reading the Hebrew Scriptures and coming to understand who Jesus was. Peter reasons with him. So this wasn't just Paul's unique approach in evangelism, but this was the apostolic approach to take the written Word of God and to test all ideas through it and to prove Jesus as the Savior from those texts. As we think by way of application, what this means in part is that the apostles did not preach salvation in Jesus' name as an emotional or a mystical experience. Now undoubtedly there is great emotion in it. We've just been working through in our adult class a couple of accounts in the last two weeks of missions in Burma and uh, a, an island tribe that was reached that we looked at today and considered their great emotional response when the truth of Christ dawns upon people. It's, it's not that I'm saying that emotion is wrong, but the approach is not primarily emotional. It is primarily looking at the text of what God has revealed. It's not prying out of individuals an existential breakthrough. It's not about self-fulfillment or self-improvement. And here now is this message that we give you of how you can improve yourself. It's none of this. The apostles sought to persuade the lost to see who Jesus was. To see what Jesus did. To understand under the light of the conviction of God's Word that they must repent of sin and place their trust in Christ as Savior. This was the process. This is the process that's going on right now in this room. This is who we are as a church to continue to unveil those texts of Scripture and prove all things by them. Reporting the good news 
the historically rooted, theologically significant fact of Jesus' death and resurrection. Proving. The Greek term connects to Luke chapter 24 and what Jesus was doing as he took the scriptures to say how they spoke of him with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Giving evidences from the text. There are many ways to evangelize the lost. And we should avail ourselves of many of them. Many ways to evangelize the lost. However, what we find here is the ideal goal. We're not always given this opportunity, but I think what we should always be working toward is individuals sitting down with an open Bible, reading the text of Scripture, and having it explained to them. As we evangelize in passing, as we meet with people, as we connect with people that are unknown to us, this should be, I think, the goal that we have. Not to simply, as one person spoke of it, as get them told, that is, just get the message there and move on, but is there a way that I can draw that person into a deeper understanding of Scripture? Not to just speak the words, but to point to the text of Scripture. I think this is a goal we should always have in mind, that we would bring people to see the revealed word concerning salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Again, there are means of addressing large crowds, there are means of approaching strangers, and these are all good and faithful means of proclaiming the gospel. But somewhere in the process, leading one to salvation, or at least continuing the discipleship process, This is the ideal to which the apostles always lead us eventually. That the word of God is read, considered, understood for the light of the lost. We see the response to Paul's preaching in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. Even that word persuaded pointing back to reasoned, explaining, proving. They're looking at the Scriptures and they're persuaded. And they joined Paul and Silas, as did a great number of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. We'd love to know the story behind the leading women and why they're they're, uh, identified this way. But some prominent individuals are responding to the Gospel. And some other men as well are thrown in there, as well as Jews. There are probably people that were uh, devoted to the Old Testament Scriptures that were even Gentiles. They're responding to this. But here's the other side. The liberation leading to rejoicing on the one hand, but then their agitation comes in at verse 5. But the Jews, that is the Jewish leaders, were jealous And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. That is, to find Paul, find Silas, bring them out to the crowd. It wasn't to congratulate them. It was to put them under severe pressure, if not bodily harm. What's the motive of this negative response? The motive is jealousy. The message of Paul and Silas was siphoning away converts who were persuaded by Paul's biblical preaching. They had not preached these things, these Jewish leaders. He is, people are listening, and they're jealous. What's their method? 
This is very interesting as we think of Paul's method here and proclaim the gospel. Their method is not rational debate about the meaning of Scripture. This is why Jesus is not the Messiah. Here are the texts that we will bring together and prove from God's written word that he's not the Messiah. It's not that. What they do is get a bunch of thugs together, rabble. I love the old King James phrase. I wish we could keep it. It calls them lewd fellows of the baser sort. (laughs) That works, doesn't it? They're lewd fellows of the baser sort. They were rabble rousers. These are, are, are thugs troublemakers to stir up the city of uh, officials against the evangelists bring them out to the crowd but verse 6 when they could not find them whether they're hiding there or have left and that's probably more likely the case they dragged Jason and some of the brothers from the city before the city authorities shouting these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also They can't find Paul and Silas, but they bring Jason, who we don't know who he is, but uh, clearly somehow was supporting them. And these pillars of society bring Jason forward with charges of insurrection, ultimately. They've turned the world upside down. This is certainly not the case. They weren't insurrectionists, and yet, isn't it ironic, they really are capturing what's happening. In a way beyond what these opponents could grasp, they were gloriously right. They were turning the world upside down. The apostles had disturbed the disturbed world with the gospel. They were toppling the pillars of the status quo. There is another king, and that's their concern in verse 7. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar. They're not. But they're saying that there is another king. That they were. So Similarly, with the charge that they were violating Roman law by advocating, they, 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 uh, by stirring up people in insurrection, so here the charge that they are advocating another king. And yet again, ironically, though they don't understand it, Jesus was indeed a king who would conquer all kings and rule the earth. Rome's relationship with the Jews was a complicated and volatile one. We're not 20 years past the time that Rome came in and crushed Jerusalem, burned it, destroyed it, and sent people to other places. And very close to this context, Roman Emperor Claudius will expel all the Jews from Rome. So these Jews going to these Roman officials are trying to say, we're not those Christians because one of the reasons that Claudius expelled the the Christians from Rome was because of all the agitation over one Crestus. Some certain guy named Crestus, which almost all historians believe is just a misspelling and a misunderstanding of Christ. So there's lots of volatility with Jews and Christians before Roman authorities, and these Jewish authorities want to say, we're not them. These are the bad guys, not us. These are the guys that are causing all kinds of disruption. These are the guys that are claiming there's another king. Well, as you can imagine, 
from the Gentile Roman Empire perspective, verse 8, the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. It was news of, that agitated them. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. What's going on there? It, it, one has said uh, this was a good behavior bond. And that's a good way to put it, is Jason places money down with the officials, and that is assuring that he's not going to house these guys anymore, help Paul and Silas and this team do what they're doing. So we'll keep your money to make sure that you're not helping them any longer. It was just a way of putting pressure upon him to not continue in fellowship with them as they spread the gospel. And we can imagine then why in 1 Thessalonians, for instance, Paul writes to the church here and is concerned. Are they persevering? Are they continuing on? Are they holding to the faith under this persecution? It was real. It was intense. This fledgling church left behind without these leaders. But it did survive. It continued. It held to the faith under that pressure. Let's just think of a couple of words of application as we think on this response from Thessalonica. The first thing that it certainly teaches us is to rightly assess the resistance. Why is there such resistance to the gospel? As we rightly assess it, we're a few pages down the way in the right direction. I paraphrase here, uh, kind of putting together in my own words and, and, and summary, some work that has been done by Dennis Johnson in his book, the message of Acts, as he works out the application of it and why the resistance that we see to Christianity, to the message of the gospel. First of all, the lordship of Jesus Christ disrupts human structures of power, control, pride, and the exploitation of others. He comes in as a king in his kingdom and troubles all of that. Christ's words threaten the way things are. And thus he threatens those who uphold and profit from the status quo. When the word and spirit combine to conquer hearts, they shake the foundations of man's kingdom, which seems to support and provide for its custodians with the desired security and importance that they want. So the word of God comes then as a threat to that supposed security. A threat to those who cling to the world's system of power and satisfaction. So what is the natural response? We see this response when the gospel is taken into secular places. We see this response, and we can point to towns in this nation where that's been the response from the established religions in a particular place. When the gospel comes in and begins to say that Jesus Christ is Lord and begins to transform lives, people get upset something's happening. You're turning our world upside down and we don't like it. But what else would we expect? What else would we anticipate? And that leads to the next point of application, not only assessing the resistance, but anticipating the resistance. Those with a vested interest in maintaining the status quo will not often welcome a message of God's deliverance from the status quo. It takes the wheel out of their hands as they try to drive the car. But how do we respond when the good news of God's saving grace in Christ is rejected, is ridiculed, is vehemently opposed? Here I think we need to learn to anticipate resistance. 
not responding to that by getting ugly. This is an easier response to the resistances. People are putting up, are opposing the message of the gospel. I'm going to put up a shield and protect myself behind it with nasty words, with ugly spirit, with blaming people who are lost when they act like they're lost. It's not the right response. Nor is the right response on the other side to hide. What I'm going to do is run away. I'm just going to keep quiet. I'm not going to speak the gospel because it may offend someone. Of course not. Rather, I think we should anticipate resistance and know that it is often a necessary aspect of the mission. Live for Jesus. Speak for Jesus. Declare liberation from the sins that people love. Speak of a final accounting before God. And you'll shake the foundations of someone's world. They're going to push back. They're not going to like it. We don't get mean, and we don't run away. Like the Apostle Paul is illustrating for us here, we just stay our ground. Keep proclaiming the truth with joy of heart and with trust in Christ. Well, as we come to the second scene, the Apostle Paul and the brothers Uh, agreeing that he needs to leave. He and Silas leave. And so verse 10, the brothers immediately send Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. We find here a reception, a liberation, that very same word that is proclaimed. Verse 11, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Notice here they received the Word. That's the noble and right response, to be receptive to what God has revealed. And they are examining the Scriptures. That is, with open-minded integrity, they are testing, uh, cross-examining Paul's arguments to see if they are supported by Scripture. So they did not dismiss Paul simply because their tradition did not teach what he was teaching. This is what happened in Thessalonica. We've never heard that, so you must be wrong. No, they're saying the test is Scripture. The fact that I've not heard it, the fact that I've not been taught it, doesn't make it wrong. This is Scripture. Let's test it. They were willing to hear, to think, to give careful thought to what was said. To see if these things were so indicates that they saw the Bible as the voice of final authority by which every belief must be tested. Do you? Do we see the Bible that way? The final, the voice of final authority by which every belief must be tested. That's how they understood the Scriptures, and so they were receptive to what Paul was teaching as he presses them to reason with him. He knew that if they were aided by the grace of God, by the Spirit of God's teaching, God's words could be made clear in their minds and draw them to faith in Christ. And again, we see the ideal is to sit down with an open Bible and to reason from it as they are considering the words that God has revealed. 
This is exactly what God accomplishes through the Apostle Paul as he proclaims the gospel here at Berea. As they eagerly receive it, as they search the scriptures to test what is being said, verse 12, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Again, some of these prominent women in the society connecting with the synagogue and hearing the words of the Lord. These followers of the God of Israel now becoming the followers of Messiah as well as some men among them. But here it is. The other side again always shows up. Verse 13, But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there to Two, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Agitating the crowds. Again, I mean, they, that's 50 miles. It wasn't in a car. And it, they knew there was going to be a return trip of another 50 miles. They want to stop this. They, wa- they are highly opposed to the Gospels continuing. And they agitate the crowds against the disciples. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea. But Silas and Timothy remained there. So Paul, 300 miles by sea, is getting out of town for good this time. It's not just 50 miles away, but 300 by sea to get out of here just so things will cool down. He's able to leave Titus Timothy and Silas. Timothy's been kind of in the background of this point, but steps forward here in the account of Acts and disciples there in the town of Berea until we find that Paul calls them finally to join him. And some time undoubtedly passes here. Those who conducted Paul, verse 15, brought him as far as Athens and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And then again, we have the uh, First and Second Thessalonian epistles that seek to uphold their continuing growth in Christ, and indeed, great things took place as the liberation of the gospel uh, continued to find others who were so liberated. But the opposition, both at Berea and even more so at Thessalonica, was very real. So when we go into this world declaring the lordship of Jesus Christ, we must understand that we are assaulting Satan's kingdom. We are attacking the spirit of the age. We are undermining the foundations of man's kingdom. We're not taking a message that's going to just connect emotionally and touch people where they are and give them what they want. When we package the gospel that way, we are repackaging something else. We need to understand that this is a message that indeed troubles the very foundations on which people live. We must not then shy away from that battle. And we should most certainly not be shocked when unbelievers respond as if they're unbelievers, as if the foundations of their world are under attack, for they are. Reasoning from the Scriptures, we are called to proclaim that Jesus is Messiah, the only name by which we must be saved. And that message is indeed an attack on all that the world holds dear as it clings to all that is passing away and all that will never fully satisfy. So when we proclaim that message faithfully, we cannot expect the world will appreciate us toppling the pillars of of their society 
as they rebel against God. And yet, we must take heart knowing that the gates of hell cannot withstand the assault of the gospel. That doesn't mean we get mean. It does not mean, certainly, that we hide. But what it means is that we step forward and speak expecting resistance knowing that the gates of hell cannot withstand an assault of the gospel. These accounts in Acts 17 remind us that God's word announced in the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, as Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 reminds us. It is the power of God unto salvation. So the gospel that rattles worldly power structures rooted in sin as they are, is the same gospel that liberates sinners from their bondage, gives them life in Christ, and unites us together as the body of Christ, His church. And as we proclaim that message, God sovereignly visits upon some an eagerness to examine the Scriptures to see if these things are true. To see if God's authoritative word supports it. And how we've seen this, even in our own story as a church, of individuals where the Scripture, they're dead to it. It's just text on a page. It's not making sense until it does. Until God, by His Spirit, allows eyes to open and to see these as the very words of God and the salvation of sinners. God mercifully helps spiritually blind people see that this news of Christ's conquest is true and it is righteous. Have you trusted that message? Have you put your faith and your confidence in it? If not, I encourage you to do so today. Only the death and resurrection of Jesus as Lord and Savior is sufficient to rescue you from yourself sufficient to rescue you from the just judgment of God's holy anger against your disobedience to His laws, your rejection of His lordship, and your pursuit of false gods. Nothing else can so deliver. But for those of us who have come to faith in Christ, may God help us adopt an eagerness to examine the Scriptures to determine what God has said. May that mark us as a church. It's why we're here. It's what we are about. For we know that that word transforms. It transforms those who take God at His word. When William Nibb was carried triumphantly by his church members from the wharf upon his return to Jamaica... His joy was not dampened by the fact that the local newspapers were assassinating his character with fabrications, new charges, freshly minted of the evil of his life. In fact, he said, I care not for that. What mattered was the liberating power of the gospel in the lives that he was seeking to touch and the many, indeed thousands, that we're now following Christ faithfully in churches. That's what mattered in that moment. 
And likewise, when we enter Christ's presence, and we enter the celebration to beat all celebrations, when this world is over, our time is done, any opposition or ridicule we encounter here for Christ will fade away as we rejoice in the company of the redeemed who trusted God at His Word. I've been there, you've been there, we've been ridiculed, We've been beaten down. We've been told horrible things sometimes by people who do not believe the truth of God's Word. But that day's going to end when the truth is seen by all and every knee bows to Christ. In that day, we will rejoice with any opposition that we received and we will rejoice together as God's people for all eternity in this gospel message, which he has revealed in his written word and which is personified in the living word, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. We praise you, Father, for this life. We praise you for the work that you have done to redeem a people for your name. We pray that you'd grant us courage, that you'd grant us faith and strength, that you would continue to deepen and mature us as we long to be those who examine the Scriptures carefully, faithfully, joyfully, and to proclaim them with the confidence that you can save souls, that the message of the Gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Lead us, mature us, provide, we pray for us as an assembly, and we pray again that you draw to saving faith those who are separated from Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.